The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... It's the 200th birthday of Louis Braille, so we'll learn about the Braille Revival League and about how one person uses Braille at home and on the job. Plus, Lynn Cooper answers questions from a listener. Happy New Year, and welcome to ACB Reports for January 2009. Last month, ACB Reports brought you information about obtaining free credit reports online. During that segment, we reported that Braille, large print, and audio reports would not be available until later. It is now later. People who are blind or visually impaired within the meaning of the Americans with Disabilities Act may now order Braille, large print, or audio credit reports from any of the three credit reporting agencies by calling 877-322-8228. Additional credit reports not covered by the free annual credit report system are also available in alternative formats. These reports may be ordered from each credit reporting agency individually at the following numbers. Equifax 800-865-1111 Experian 888-397-3742 800-888-4213. For more information about obtaining credit reports online, listen to ACB Reports for December 2008 or see articles in recent editions of the Braille Forum. Louis Braille was born in January 1809. His invention has opened a world of knowledge and opportunities for people who are blind. In his holiday message to members of the American Council of the Blind, ACB President Mitch Pomerantz said, 2009 marks the 200th anniversary of the birth of Louis Braille, the inventor of the code which serves as the written language of the blind. In the United States, Braille literacy is declining for a variety of reasons. We cannot allow this trend to continue. The American Council of the Blind must and will strive to see that Braille literacy rates increase, not just here, but throughout the world. As we enter into the bicentennial of the birth of Louis Braille, my commitment is to build on the momentum of our successes to even greater efforts to promote our positive belief in the abilities and capabilities of blind and visually impaired people throughout the nation and worldwide. ACB wishes everyone an outstanding 2009, a year in which we honor the memory of the Father of Braille, not just in words, but in positive actions toward enhanced Braille literacy and opportunities for all blind and visually impaired men, women, and children. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports.
Judy Jackson of San Antonio, Texas, is president of the Braille Revival League, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Here's Judy to tell us how the Braille Revival League began. The Braille Revival League is an affiliate that was started by some very progressively thinking people. And the reason that it was begun was to continue to promote the education and the awareness and obviously the most important part to keep Braille alive and to keep it going and for our country to understand that we in the American Council of the Blind believe in Braille and believe that it's a viable option for students, for adults, for whomever wants to learn it, and that it's as important a medium as print. By way of background, it was right about that time in the early 80s when people suddenly realized Braille is not being taught as much as it should or, or in the That's places right. where it should. And tell us a little bit about the membership and the dues structure. We have around 260 members, and we are looking to increase that. Uh, when I became president, one of the very first meetings I had with my board was to give them the challenge for us to gain two affiliates in this year of 09 and then two more in 10. And I have a board that's very supportive and is willing to do that. We have affiliates in the state of Texas, and then we have uh, an affiliate in uh, California. And then in the state of Pennsylvania, there is an organization of Braille transcribers, and they are called the Jenny Beck chapter, and they are part of BRL. The state of Pennsylvania itself does not have an affiliate as part of their state affiliate. At our conventions every year, about three years ago, um, we were trying to think of a way to raise money, and I love games. I just think games are so fun and love to play them, and you get to know people. And so the game of Bunko was something that I had played in my community at home, and so I thought, you know, that could so easily be adapted for BRL. Um, and you didn't have to be a proficient Braille reader. If you could count to six, you were in good shape. You know, it was going to do all of the things I wanted it to do. It was going to bring us money, primarily, because people would pay to play. Um, it was going to give people a chance to get to know each other from all over. You didn't have to be a member of BRL. We were hoping it could be a membership tool, which it, in fact, has. But it has been really a neat thing, and it's probably been the biggest moneymaker for a couple of years throughout all of the ACB affiliates. We've made the most money, and we've had the lowest cost because I am cheap, and so I like to keep things at a minimum as best as I can. We have had um, people from all over the place come and talk to us about Braille graphics. You know, Mike, with the computer age, that was another thing in the 80s that was really scary because computers were becoming really popular and Braille translation software was really getting going then. And so there were many of us who were afraid that Braille was really going to become obsolete and that, you know, there really wasn't going to be a need for it and teachers of the visually impaired who were going to come out of school weren't going to know it very well. And then if we had um, kids who needed to learn it, we were worried about how that might be taught. So at our conventions every year, we usually have some sort of educational component, some speaker that can come and talk about the importance. This year, we are going to connect with um, our International Relations Committee and because this year is the 200th anniversary of Louis Braille, uh, we're going to do something like Braille around the world and try to get some international speakers uh, to come in and talk about 
how Braille is used in their countries and how Braille is written, and I'm just really thrilled about that. I think that's going to be really exciting. And so the 2009 convention is just going to be packed, I think. And that convention is a part of the National Convention of the American Council of the Blind, something we talk about quite often on ACB reports. You mentioned January being the 200th commemoration of the birth of Louis Braille. January traditionally has been promoted as Braille Literacy Month. Is that something that the Braille Revival League started? I don't know if that is something that Braille Revival League started or not, but I will tell you that this January, Braille Revival League is going to be front and center in terms of promoting Braille literacy. In Texas, we are working with Barnes & Noble bookstores around the state to promote Braille literacy, and the National Basketball Association, their foundation, is literacy, and so we've got different sports figures from around the different teams that will come to our different Barnes & Noble stores and read a Braille book that we've purchased from National Braille Press. In some places, we also have children who are blind or visually impaired who are fluid Braille readers um, that will read to sighted kids. When I then became president of BRL National, I put that challenge out to our national board, and we've got places around the country where people are going to be doing that, too. So Braille literacy will be front and center all throughout the month of January. Different affiliates around the country will be working with either Barnes & Noble stores or Borders stores. So we're really excited about that and about its promotion because Louis Braille just gave those of us who are blind or visually impaired, who are Braille readers, he gave us a, a gift to the world that we might not otherwise have. If a parent is uh, hearing this program and they realize that Braille would be a benefit to them, yet their child is not being taught Braille, what do they need to do? Educational systems vary from state to state. But what I would say to you is go to your child's VI teacher and get that written in the IEP. You know, it's alphabet soup and everybody calls things differently, but it's the individualized education plan is what we call it in Texas, and we have what's called an ARD, which is an Admissions Review and Dismissal Committee meeting, and that's where you talk about your child's educational goals and the things that you want to see, um, and, in, and I can speak to Texas. In Texas, the parent is sort of the supreme court of that ARD. Nothing happens without the parent's approval. I'm not sure how it varies around the country, but that would certainly be the place. I think that would be a safe place for anyone in the country if a student or a parent feels like Braille is a viable and necessary option for their child or you as a student feel like that's something you need, go to your VI teacher and find out what the process is to get that done in your state. Is there any type of informational packet that uh, the Braille Revival League distributes as a matter of fact, we are in the process of getting that started. We have a brochure. We are working on getting a graphic for it. We um, are also looking at um, getting a website. I really want us to give BRL a facelift, if you will, because we have loads of projects in mind waiting to get going over the next little while. 
And in order for us to do that, it's going to take money. And so we want to be able to write grants. And we want the people who would be our grantors to be able to read about us and know who we are and what we are and what we believe. We don't have that in place as we speak, but we are hoping in the next few months we have been really inundated with getting this Barnes & Noble thing off the ground. And the other thing that we're going to do uh, in pretty short order also is to um, talk to a representative and a senator in Washington and find out how we can get a resolution read on the floor of the House and the Senate when ACB does their legislative seminar. So we've been busily working. I took over in July, and I have had this board working hard, and they've just been so good. And we're going to look at maybe a Braille symposium toward the end of the year because we really want to do some things to honor Louis Braille and just to give Braille a facelift. So 2009 is a quite busy year for the Braille Revival League, and that means it's a great time for a person to join. How does a person join, and what's the calendar year for the dues? The calendar year is from January to December. The dues are $10 a year. Our treasurer is um, Ann Byington, B-Y-I-N-G-T-O-N. You can call the ACB National Office and find out how to reach her to get your dues to her, and she will gladly take them. BRL is just as critical as GDUI or library users or uh, CCLVI, any of those things, because we need to have a voice and we need to be heard. There's a big controversy um, that's been going on for quite some time about the different Braille codes. There, there are currently two that are being considered. And come in and find out what about those and let your voice be heard about where you think Braille ought to go and what students need to know and what adults need to know. People in positions to make those decisions need to hear from us. So I look forward to meeting many of you this summer at our Orlando convention, and we're going to have a great time. That was Judy Jackson, president of the Braille Revival League. How can Braille be beneficial to a person at home or on the job? Judy Dixon is the Consumer Relations Officer for the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. She is also the chairman of BANA, the Braille Authority of North America. She is passionate about Braille. All of y'all know this, but using Braille is a lot more like using print than audio is. I mean, with Braille, you can see spelling, you can see how the page is formatted. How many sighted people would do well at their jobs if they only had an audio recorder to take notes with and an audio device to read with. I don't think that people would do very well in that situation. Why is that? We need to have a way to see what we're doing. I was at a conference recently. This conference traditionally has an announcer. So this announcer gives information about uh, times of meals and events and meeting rooms and so forth. In the last few years, because blind people are so competent, they've been having a blind person do this. Well, the people who picked the person for this year picked this blind person. He had a wonderful, one of those booming voices. Oh, he'll be fabulous. I said, 
But he's not a braille reader. Oh, he'll, he'll do okay. But he was not a braille reader. I was very worried. Well, I had good reason to be worried. Um, he, uh, he did okay. Well, less than okay. I, I mean, I guess people got the information, but as a blind person and a braille reader, I was mortified. One day I sat next to the person who chose him, and I said, I'm going to hit you every single time he makes a mistake. <laughs> the, poor, the poor man was black and blue by the end of the meal. What do I use my braille for in my job? I still have a Rolodex. When my husband and I got married for one of my first Christmases, I knew my husband really understood me when for Christmas he gave me an 1,100-card Rolodex. I was thrilled. I once read that keeping names and addresses on a computer is like keeping your car keys in your safe deposit box. And there's something to that. So I keep my names and addresses on my Rolodex in my office. There it is in Braille. I can look it up. That's the nice thing about Braille. You can do stuff while you're on the phone. When I'm sitting on a conference call, I can do my email. You can't do that with audio. People will know. <laughs> or you'll just get confused. Labeling. Quick identification. I mean, you can find things fast. File folders. If I need to take something to my secretary, the files are in my office. So the file folders are labeled in Braille. Even though there's a lot of print inside those folders, I can at least grab the right folder. I take notes at meetings with Braille. And also, if I'm going to give a speech, I have some Braille notes. I mean, this would be more disorganized than it is if I didn't have Braille notes up here. It's very, very helpful. So, I think using Braille in the workplace, being a Braille reader, and functioning on the job is so amazingly critical. Almost any job I can think of, the user would benefit very much by being a Braille user. But I'm, I'm going to say something outrageous now. It really is okay if people use uncontracted Braille. If learning uncontracted Braille takes an hour, learning contracted Braille takes a year, why not? I use a Braille display with my computer all day long. I never, ever, ever turn on contracted Braille. Mostly because when you start contracting things like email messages and websites, you really can get an enormous mess. And you can actually get confused and erroneously informed about things. So I don't use it for accuracy. I don't, I don't use contracted Braille with my Braille display because I want to see what's really there. I have gotten so used to it, uncontracted Braille, with my Braille display, that it's just a non-issue for me anymore. I, when I first started, oh, how will I do it? You know, it's not contracted. Oh, gosh, it will be so much harder to read. And I'm so used to it now, I never even think about it. But if people start out that way, if, if somebody wants to label, somebody wants to take notes, somebody wants to read their notes with uncontracted Braille, and that is easier for them, more accurate for them, more possible for them, then there is nothing wrong with it. We have gotten this idea that to be a Braille reader, you have to be a good enough reader to read a book. Have you read War and Peace lately in Braille? <laughs> and to be a contracted Braille reader and all of its glory, know all the rules and reproduce it accurately. I don't think that's necessary. I think if you want to use Braille as a tool, 
for reading and writing, personal organization, note-taking, labeling, all of that. An uncontracted braille is what you know. And what you're going to know, then that's okay. I'm certainly not advocating that children of normal intelligence and normal ability be taught uncontracted braille and let it go at that. I am not saying that. But I am talking about people who are adult learners of braille, for whom contracted braille can be a bit daunting, and people for whom a small amount of braille is going to be a whole lot better than nothing, and vastly better than trying to force them to read contracted braille. I've talked to kids who love being braille readers, and I've talked to little ones. I, I met a seven-year-old who came up to me at an NFB conference a couple of years ago, and he told me, he says, I use web braille. He says, my father told me, you invented web braille. Said, well, it, was, it was sort of there. And I, I kind of started it. And uh, he said, well, I use web braille, and I do it myself. And his kid was so proud of the fact that he did it himself, and he just loved being a braille reader. But I've also talked to teenagers, and especially the kids who become blind, you know, between like eight years old and, and 15, and they don't want to read Braille. They're embarrassed. I remember once when I was in school, I was sitting with a Braille book, and it happened to be a, a French Braille book. I was studying my French homework, and one of the other kids came up and says, what are you reading? I said, oh, French. He goes, Ooh, that looks hard. I don't think I'm going to take that. <laughs> so, I, Braille is not necessarily universally appealing among teenagers. And, and I worry about these kids. But I wonder if there are ways that we can kind of trick them into using Braille when it's to their benefit without them really knowing this is what's happening. For example, kids really like music. And uh, we had a, a, she was a very young girl at the time. She liked Braille. And she had a lot of cassettes. This was 10 years ago. Now it would have all be CDs, probably. But when she was about five, I spent an entire Sunday at her house and I labeled every single cassette. So she had to read a lot of Braille to find her own cassettes. And she did. She started reading Braille and started learning to find her cassettes. She read a lot of Braille. But I think labeling can be a very, very appealing way for kids to learn Braille and use Braille and not even really being aware. Nobody's making them sit down and read War and Peace. They're just reading Braille for their own purposes. And Braille readers are pretty passionate about their Braille. I, I worry, though, that most of the Braille readers that are really passionate about their Braille are also over 50. <laughs> I, I mean, there are, there are certainly some kids who are learning Braille. And the Braille bills have done a lot to help Braille and, and, and the teaching and learning of Braille in school. I just know that kids have so many choices these days, and, and it does seem that some of them are taking the opportunity to, to uh, do something else. Wonderful. Thank you. It's been so good to be here. I, I love visiting Mississippi. Judy Dixon was recorded at the annual conference of the Mississippi Association for the Education and Rehabilitation of the Blind and Visually Impaired in May 2008. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports.
Lynn Cooper of the Mirrors Project loves to hear from listeners to ACB reports. Here she is with some answers for a listener in Cincinnati. One of our listeners, who I'm going to refer to as the Cincinnati Kid, wrote, I'm 40-something and going a little gray with most of my hair. I've had it colored, but my hairstylist says to stay young-looking. I am not super devoted to having this done, but maybe three times a year. The gray comes back between colorings. He said, I'm sure people notice when I get it done as time has elapsed between sessions, but my hairstylist does a great job and knows how to blend the correct colors for me. I do this before an important event. Should I proceed this way or forgo it altogether? And he says, it is also expensive to have this done. Wow, this is a really important question and a good question. It is something that many of us deal with. We have two different ways to look at this. Um, Number one, if you are in an industry where it is important to present youth, if that is the case, then this is the cost of doing business. And I would say, yes, make sure you have a trusted human mirror. Let you know when you need a touch-up if you're not able to discern that visually. Another perspective, and one that I would probably suggest doing, is to simply let it go. We live in a different day and age. There is uh, much more casualness, but also men who are gray have a very sophisticated, elegant demeanor. I look through the pages of uh, Men's Vogue magazine or GQ magazine, and I see fashion models doing full-page ads who are not much over 30 themselves, fully gray. So I would say that if we have a good human mirror and we get their feedback, if we do choose to have it uh, highlighted or to have it colored, do so, but be very, very careful that it is uh, kept up. And if you do wish to let it go, go for it. But I know that it can be very expensive and sort of like having manicures. If you're going obviously gray and you have your hair darkened you know it will be dramatic people will notice if you have that one day and then the next day you're a different color i would say especially in this culture to go with the um, easiest and the most natural and we also are designed as human beings with our eye our skin color and our hair color to work as a unit so i think whatever nature intends is often the best approach gray hair is not what it used to be This same listener, Cincinnati Kid, asked about the 501 genes that I mentioned in a past segment and wanted me to describe what makes them classic. Well, a 501 gene is probably one of the first styles of genes that Levi Strauss made, and they were actually made for miners, which gave Levi Strauss its start. And gold miners and others that were settling out in California in the mid-1800s needed to have a pair of pants that really held up to rough work. So this is a uh, classic pair of jeans. They are not terribly flared. They are straight. They are really good for a men's body in that they uh, fit the waist. They're medium rise, meaning they're not terribly low on the hips. They're not terribly high on the waist. And they are pretty straight, a little tiny bit of a flare at the bottom just to get one's shoes on or over boots. He also uh, asked if I suggest black, brown, or navy. I would definitely suggest navy. Dark indigo navy is really the best color. It's certainly the most uh, formal if you're going to be putting a sport coat over it or wanting to take it beyond uh, play. 
I would not suggest brown in a jean. I'm not real big on brown in general because brown is a very low-end color and very infrequently seen in any sort of fashion realm. What I would say is if you do get a black jean or that dark navy, that you have them dry cleaned. And that is uh, not only an expense and, and an ecological issue unless you have one of those green dry cleaning businesses near you, but they will begin to fade. That is what there is to know about 501s. Lynn Cooper developed the Mirrors Project as part of her personal and professional effort to make the world accessible to all people and to offer positive reflections to people of all abilities. These personal image segments heard on ACB Reports are an ongoing part of the Mirrors Project. Lynn has established an email address through which to receive your feedback, comments, and suggestions regarding these personal image segments. That address is mirrors1usa at yahoo.com. That's M-I-R-R-O-R-S-1 USA at Yahoo.com. ACB has moved. Our new address is American Council of the Blind, 2200 Wilson Boulevard, Suite 650, Arlington, Virginia, 22201. Call ACB toll-free at 800-424-8666 or visit us online at www.acb.org. You've been listening to ACB Reports. This program is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. With special thanks to Louis Braille for making the reading of this announcement and others heard during this program possible, I'm Mike Duke, wishing everyone a Happy New Year.